Well, I think that one of the most famous street evangelists of our day is a man by the name of Ray Comfort. In fact, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you may even be familiar with that name. He's an Australian chap who has done a lot of his ministry around the world and has found himself here in the U.S. for a significant amount of that. I think his ministry is centered out of Southern California these days. But he's known for his approach to people on the street, strangers, where he shares the gospel, points to God's law, and explains their fallenness, their brokenness, their need for salvation. And I think it can quite easily be said that this brother has the spiritual gift of evangelism. It's incredible to watch the fruitfulness of his ministry. I once heard him share in a video uh, what helped him think about his present approach to evangelism and sharing the gospel. And he gave an illustration that went something like this. He said, imagine an airplane filled with passengers, and somebody makes their way up and down the aisle saying, can I hand you a parachute? Can I hand this? Can I give this to you? And the parachute is big and chunky and awkward, and uh, you know, I've got my computer on my lap. No, thank you. Uh, well, how am I gonna, this is going to be cumbersome. No, I don't want the burden of that parachute on my lap. But he said, but now imagine if that person running up and down the aisles were saying, the plane is going to crash, we're all going down, everyone grab a parachute now. People would be clamoring for the burden of the parachute in order to be saved. And his point was clear, but what he intended to say was that when people are made aware of their plight, just how serious their condition is, only then are they eager to reach out for salvation, for the rescue. It's a kind of helpful illustration. He even calls the way that he approaches evangelism in this way, the way of the master. That's what he calls it. And he calls it that because he sees Jesus sharing the gospel repeatedly throughout the gospels. And he sees that Jesus regularly points to the condition of our fallen state so that people know that they need to be saved from the consequences of their sins. This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 3, where we're going to yet again see Jesus explain with great clarity the present condition of all humankind in our natural state, one of condemnation. And it's on that foundation that he shares the gospel of good news I want to go ahead and turn to John chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. I'm going to read these verses out loud and then pray, and we'll go back through. My hope will be to explain to you what Jesus is saying here so that we're all on the same page, and then to provide some points of application that might be helpful for us today. We have been going quite slowly for a while now. I spent four weeks on one verse, John 3, 16. Uh, We're going to start picking up the pace a bit more at this time and look at larger chunks. So if you have your Bibles... John 3, verses 17 through 21. I'm going to read those out loud now. For God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to see this clearly. Help us to understand what it is that Jesus is saying. Even as believers, Lord, let us just soak in this. Let us be gospel-saturated. Let us be reminded once again of where we were headed and what we've been given as a gracious gift in Christ today. Let us examine ourselves, Lord, and let us grow in our knowledge of these things that we may produce in our hearts a, a love for you and a desire to reach lost people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back to verse 17 here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You might remember if you've been with us here for a bit, I argued for four weeks and even spent the first of those four weeks, the majority of that time, trying to argue that the purpose for John 3.16, that famous verse, was to explain God's motivation for sending his son. Why did God send his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why did God do that? The answer is John 3.16. For or because God so loved the world. That's why. Why did he do it? Because he loved the world. It was his love that motivated him to give his most precious gift. Here in verse 17, the very next verse, Jesus further speaks to God's motivation behind why he sent his son. But this time he, he explains the flip side of the coin. Rather than telling us why he sent his son, he gives us a reason as to why he didn't send his son. It's, this is not the reason. And what does he say? God did not send his son to condemn the world. So why did he send his son? Because he loved the world. He did not send his son to condemn the world. Now you and I could sit here and we could surmise a whole bunch of reasons that God did not send his son. He did not send his son to glorify man. He did not send his son because there are people that needed healing and there was no other way. He did not send his son to chiefly go to the Gentiles. He says specifically that's not what he was sent for. There are lots of things Jesus did not come for. Why then would he tell us this not? Why would he even mention condemnation if that's not the reason? What's the purpose? And the answer, of course, comes in the very next verse. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's why Jesus mentions condemnation, because it is the present state of all natural man. Many people today think that they can have peace with God simply on the merits of their own good works. They've done enough good things or not quite enough bad things to be considered a bad person. And so some wrongly think they can, by their own self-assessment, stand before God as a pretty good person. Not perfect, but he knows I'm trying. That kind of language, right? But whether or not a person has done more or less good than his neighbor, or more or less good than he could have, is entirely irrelevant no matter how much good he has done or evil he has avoided, from a legal standpoint, he is under condemnation. He's condemned. That's what Jesus is saying. 
I'd, I'd been on two months of sabbatical. I just returned back this last week. And right before returning back, I got a jury summons. I had to be prepared to go uh, to be on, on the jury here in Salt Lake County uh, some, sometime between July and August. And this, just last week, I got the uh, case assigned to me. I, I was assigned to a case. Uh, I think I still have to go through an additional selection process. But it said, here's the dates, and so it's all next week. All next week. All five straight days, they said, to expect it to be that long. Could be longer, but they should be wrapped up by the end of August. That's great. That's wonderful to hear. Should be done by then. So I've got uh, jury duty, and I had to go online and fill out a whole bunch of questionnaires and a 30-minute long survey about things, and it was very legal language. And so I'm trying to get my mind all wrapped around uh, just courtroom again, so I'm brushing up on Judge Judy to make sure I'm all set for how courts are supposed to be run. But I've been thoughtful about this, and it's kind of, okay, I'm going to, maybe, very, if I'm selected, I'll have to sit there and listen to something that's going down and provide some level of judgment one way or the other and cast a vote, however that works. I guess I'll find out. But when a person stands before a judge, they don't stand there for all the good things that they've done. They stand there for the thing that they've done, the crime that they've committed or allegedly committed. That's why they're there. And so if the person who is, has been alleged to have committed murder is standing there and says, I just want for the judge to know, and for all of you jurors to know, uh, many years of good things I've done. Even last week, I walked a little lady across the street. I helped my neighbor kid get his cat out of the tree just about a month ago. In fact, you may or may not know, I bought more Girl Scout cookies than I needed to just to help those cute little girls outside the supermarket. The judge will go, that's not why you're here. You're here because of a crime we believe has been committed. And we're here to discern whether or not you are guilty of that crime. That's why the person's there. Jesus here has switched his language from perish, eternal life, very spiritual language. He has switched his language here to a very courtroom language, a legal language. He now uses the word condemned. It's the same word as judged. In fact, some of your Bibles might use that English word instead. You might say whoever believes in him is not judged or under judgment. Same word. And I want you to notice something about this legal language here. Unbelief, unbelief is not the crime being punished. Just notice that. Seems like a nuance, but notice carefully. It is not the crime being punished. Why are you on the stand today? Because you didn't believe. No, no that's not technically what is said here. Listen to the words again. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Belief is the only thing that gets you out of condemnation. It is the sure proof that you remain condemned. But unbelief by itself does not produce condemnation. This is why people before Jesus was born were still condemned in their sins. Before the Savior came, they were still under condemnation. Before a person ever hears the name of Christ, they're under condemnation. That is not by itself specifically the crime. It, that is a crime for those that have been confronted with Jesus and rejected him. That certainly is a legal crime before the Lord, yes. 
But the unbelief here is the sure proof that a person remains under their natural state. Condemned already. Everyone starts out this way. Virtually every Sunday that I, I, I preach from this pulpit and I share the gospel as clearly as I know how in the flow of the sermon, I, I explain the need for the gospel. We're, we're, we're guilty sinners before God. We're deserving of his just wrath and his judgment. And oftentimes I'll recite one of the most common verses that summarizes that idea. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It goes on to even more beautiful truths, but that's the total depravity part. And that's the way we refer to this doctrine, total depravity. Total meaning all people, depravity meaning sin. That's what total depravity means. That's different for the theologians in here. It's different than utter depravity, which is an individual person's worst possible things they could do. That's not the doctrine. The doctrine is that all people are sinners. That's total depravity. Proverbs 20, verse 9, says it this way in the Old Testament. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one can say, I am sinless. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon writes, wisest man who's ever lived, he says this, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. You see, this is stuff that said, thousand years before Christ walks on the earth. The condemnation due to the sinful person is an ever-present reality that every human being has faced in the history of the world minus one, our perfect Jesus Christ alone. I was reflecting on the idea this last week as I'm preparing for this sermon. There's so much division in our world. Goodness, you can't, you cannot Look at a news story from any outlet and not just smell it. It's everywhere. Division and a constant intention to drive people further into division. Oh, it looks like you're getting a little chummy over there in your camp. Let's find a way to break that up. This is everywhere in our world. And people are, are striking lines in places, some that are the tried and true division lines that the enemy has used throughout generations, and some are new lines. There's so much bickering and arguing. Differences between groups of people, race, split the lines along nationality, maybe political affiliations, of course, religious background. Sometimes it's, it's, it's the, the, the amount of privilege that different people think that one might be born into or not. Sometimes it's, it's the amount of advantages or disadvantages, the, the victimhood status. And depending on which side of these arguments you're hearing from, you're still going to hear consistently from both sides, there are groups, and we are divided along all these lines. This is where Christians can have a shining moment if we could embrace this, because we have a truth that levels the playing field. It levels it. Bicker and argue about those lines all you want. But at the end of the day, this truth puts all of us at the same starting point. We all start in exactly the same position before God. I don't know what privilege you have. I don't know what advantages you do or don't have. I don't know about that thing or that thing or that thing. Apparently, we can study that more and more. But here's what you need to know about. You stand condemned before God. And whether or not you ever deal with all these other things, if you don't settle this, you'll either spend an eternity with or without him. You need to get that figured out. This puts all of us in the same position. You know, I was thinking about Exodus and the story, this 
uh, that, that just, it just popped out of my mind because it felt exactly this, that God shows no partiality, James tells us in the New Testament. And we see this in the Old Testament where he literally talks about people from different socioeconomic statuses and how the judgment that he will offer will go across the board in entirety. Think about the 10th plague of Egypt. Moses is standing before Pharaoh. God brings all these plagues against Egypt to release his people. The 10th and final plague was the, the plague on the firstborn, right? God says to Moses as he's getting ready to do this plague, he says, tell the people that I will come down and pass over the people of the land and take the life of the firstborn of everyone in the land, whether it be the firstborn of Pharaoh in the, Roman, in the royal family or the firstborn son of the slave girl in the field. No partiality. You all, every home is going to have to deal with this. That's true still today. We do start at that same point. And that's true of every person you'll ever meet, every group, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, forever. This is why it is, it doesn't matter where you come from. The Lord's put a burden on your heart for missions, and you find yourself on a boat 10,000 miles away from your home, land on a shore, and confronted with some people, you don't have to know their language, you don't have to know their laws, you don't have to know their beliefs, you don't have to know what they worship. You know they stand condemned before God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. You know the most important thing you need to know about their condition. So many people today will play that game because of the divisions and the lines that they draw. You can't speak into that person's issue or that person because you can't know. We have many brothers and sisters who are part of our church here and do an abortion mill ministry, and they stand out there, and one of the more common refrains, I've had it happen to me when I've been out there, and I've witnessed this happen to my other brothers, is a brother says, please don't murder your baby, and some woman says, well, you're not a, you're not a woman. You can't, you can't make any judgment on that. No, but I'm a sinner, and so are you. And apart from saving faith in Christ, you too will be condemned. No matter what conditions you were born into, you were born under condemnation. Jesus came on a rescue mission because that's where you are. The message of the gospel is not one of condemnation. That's what's being said here. It is not one of condemnation, but of salvation. But in order to receive it, you must first acknowledge that you're already condemned. You, get, you know that if you're a believer. I heard, heard one commentator say it like this. I'm going to paraphrase how you heard it. Condemnation is an effect of Christ's coming the way that shadows are a result of the sun rising. The sun does not bring darkness, but it necessarily casts shadows wherever it doesn't land. Just as the true Son of God, His coming necessarily divides between light and darkness. Now, at this point in my study, as I was preparing this for you all, I just had this flash in my mind. I was like, I'm going to share this with the church. I love asking this question all the time, and for some reason, right at this point, I started thinking, who did Jesus say this to? Who was his audience? You know the answer in one word. The name is the, a man named Nicodemus. That means that this very famous passage, and of course that super famous verse we just finished covering last week, has been read and heard known by probably in the world billions of people. And these truths, some of them have been memorized by millions and millions of people, and yet who was the first audience a Pharisee. Let me ask you this. In Jesus' day, 
Why the Pharisee? I think because the Pharisees were the least likely people to admit their own condemnation, their own sinfulness, their own deservedness of judgment. That's why. That's why I think. In fact, if you were to survey the people, hey, who's the most likely to get into heaven, uh, the kingdom of God? Who's the most likely to be in God's favor today? The people would probably go, not me, I'm the sinner, I'm the tax collector. I'm... But the Pharisee, he's righteous. Jesus even said it similarly like this in Matthew 23, 28, about the Pharisees. He says, you Pharisees also outwardly appear righteous to others. Everyone thinks you're the righteous ones, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, right? And so he says, to the Pharisee, you are condemned. This is like going to the strongest man in the world and saying, you are weak. Do you not know? Look, look around me. I'm stronger than everybody. You're weak. And so this lands in the context of the conversation with Nicodemus with a, another weight, doesn't it? doesn't it? If the most righteous of the people, and actually we've said this before, I, I've said this before, it seems to me, and I, I, maybe you're convinced of the same, that Nicodemus probably is the righteous man, loves the word, loves truth, and he's going to Jesus to ask sincere questions. We'll see later, it sounds like he has something that goes on, that he's helped, he actually helps bury Jesus's body and takes on that potential shame and stigma to, to be there with him. He's not supposed to even touch a dead body, as a Pharisee, right, as a Jew. He's not even supposed to do that. And he, he stooped to that in some level with Joseph of Arimathea. We, we talked about this before. But the idea is, it sounds to me that there might be some genuine sincerity here in Nicodemus. He might be better off than most of the Pharisees in this regard. And yet Nicodemus is under condemnation. You and I are too in our natural state. I want you to notice something else, though, and this is probably the most important thing to notice here. While this condemnation is universal, there is a way to avoid it. Let me say that clearly. There is one way to avoid it, and only one way to avoid condemnation from God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. What is it that removes the condemnation? The judgment due to you? Belief. Belief. Three times belief shows up again in this verse. Believe, believe, believe. This is all over John. John loves talking about belief. Jesus talks about belief all over the book of John. John especially remembers the way Jesus talks about belief and records it repeatedly for us. If you believe, you have salvation you have been rescued out of condemnation. And it is a present rescue. Whoever believes in, I'm going to say it the wrong way, and I think you'll see what I mean. Whoever believes in him will someday have condemnation removed. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned in the end. Those things are true, but that's not what it says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's it. You are not condemned if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. J.C. Ryle, a commentator, I read on this, worded it just this way. I thought it was helpful. Said it better than I could. It is not said that the believer shall not be condemned at the last day, 
but that he is not condemned. The very moment a sinner believes on Christ, his iniquities are taken away and he is counted righteous. And so what happens to all the condemnation you were born with, you lived with until that moment? What what happens to all of it? Some of you might already have ringing in your mind, like, like like I do now, Romans 8. 1 through 2. I just want to read that, a familiar passage that speaks to that exactly. What happens to the condemnation? First, we know this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We know our sin deserves condemnation, and God would not be just if he just looked the other way. Those sins must be condemned. So how can you be justified? God must condemn your sins apart from you. He must remove your sins from you that they may be condemned. And that's what the verse continues on. Romans, I was in eight. I just read verses one through two. Listen to verses three and four. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the good news. You and I carry on our shoulders a polluted garment. We are covered in the sinful wickedness of ourselves, fallen short of the glory of God. No one can say I am pure. No one can say I have not a stain upon me. All of us have those on us. We cannot walk into God's perfect house, his glorious kingdom, treading our mud and blood all over. And so what must we do? We must remove those sins And that's what Jesus does for us on the cross. Jesus steps in with his perfect, spotless, sinless garments, brilliant white. And he trades with us, the filthy ones, and then now bearing our sin, goes to the cross, takes our sin there with him, and bears the wrath of God that we deserve. And you and I, Walk out with perfect, spotless garments that are not ours, but his. If you're not a believer today, this is what we want for you. We want for you to have that, and there's only one way to have it, belief in Jesus. That's how you get the trade. That's how he takes your sins, you get his righteousness. That's it. Believe on him, and all of your sins will have been dealt with on the cross. And as he died, buried, and then was raised from the grave, you too can have eternal life. That's the hope. Believe. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe. You are not condemned. One more thing I want to make note of here before we move on. What must we believe in? Belief is what makes the difference. Belief is it. Okay, we've said this repeatedly. John, John pounds this, hammers it over and over. The New Testament says this everywhere. You can almost just flip the pages and drop your finger on, and somewhere in, on that page, you're going to find this truth. Belief makes the difference. 
Believers are no longer marked by their own works, but by their faith. I want you to consider for a moment, and I've done this before, and maybe you should try this sometime. If, you ever, if you're meeting with a uh, Latter-day Saint missionary, for example, a works-based faith, we're all surrounded by it, everywhere we look around here. Ask, I've done, I've done this, ask, ask a Mormon missionary, how do I become a Latter-day Saint? Do you know what, you know what it'll tell you? It'll give you a list of things to do. You have to do this, you have to do this, you get baptized, you have to become a member Church Latter-day Saints, Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, you're going to have to. And then if you want to achieve, you're going to have to become temple worthy. You're going to have to get married in the temple, sealed in the temple. You're going to have to. They're going to give a list. How do I become a Latter-day Saint? Here's the works. But if you have a Christian, ask a Christian, how do I become a believer? How do I become a Christian? What's the answer? Believe. You must Believe. I want you to notice the necessary and operative object of our belief here. What must we believe in? The name of the only Son of God, the name of Jesus. The beginning of that verse says, believe in him. That's what it is. Belief in Jesus is what we need. I think we all know this as believers, but I just want to camp here for just a minute to make sure that we just drill this down deep and that there's no way the enemy can trick us into thinking just a little off on such an important point. If you're a believer, it is true that you do and should love good doctrine, good teaching, good beliefs. You should. You should set your life to pursue truth in its fullness for the rest of your days. That is true. And it matters what you believe about Jesus. Very true. But your salvation does not hang upon your belief in right doctrine, but in a person. Let me explain it this way. If I were to ask you, husbands, wives, think of this for your husband as well. Husbands, if I were to ask you why you love your wife, why do you love your wife? You might give me a list of qualities you admire, you admire in her. Oh, she's beautiful, godly woman, wonderful mother, kind friend, good counselor. The list could go on. Praise God for that. But what if I were just to go, well, I can find someone else with those exact same qualities, man. Even better. Maybe a couple of extra ones that weren't on that list. Would you say, oh, well, I guess I should give my love to that? No! No, you wouldn't, because you'd say, no, no, Rich, I love her. She's who I love. She's who I want. Yes, I am grateful for and love all these qualities, but I love her. And what if one day one of those qualities disappeared? You think she's beautiful. You love her hair. What if she got disfigured or burned in an accident? And those things that you used to admire in her and no, no hair in her head anymore... Then, then what? Then what do you do? Well, one less quality. No! She's the object of your love. And whatever she embodies, she's your bride. This is the way we're supposed to love Christ. I love him. He's my king. He's my treasure. I, there's so many things I don't yet know about Christ. I will need an eternity to learn more about the perfections of him. 
But whatever I learn about him will be more things added to my love. It is not the qualities that you love most. It's the person. It's not just all of the true and wonderful things about Christ. It is Christ. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love him. Believe in him. Put your faith in him. And listen, this actually does matter because all of us, every single one of us, if we're taking the Bible seriously, are at times going to run into, oh, what do you, what do, you do with that verse? I don't, know what, I don't know what he means. Or you're going to do like I did this last week. I read through this passage right here, and I said, okay, wait a second. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But a few chapters later, do you know what else it says? For judgment, Christ was sent. Oh, wait, hold on. Wait, hold on. He didn't come for... Con- now listen, I think there's a solution to that, and I'll deal with that when we get there. But here's the problem. When you face those things, what do you go? Wait, wait, hold on, time out. Who's this Christ guy, and what's he saying? No, I love and I believe in my Christ, and whatever comes out of his mouth is mine to follow and submit to and love and trust. This is John chapter 9. This is the blind man who's healed by Jesus, and he stands before the Pharisees, and they're challenging him. He says, I don't, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, I, I, but he, I was blind and now I see. And then when they challenged him, they pushed on him, and the words, they didn't say it exactly this way, but they were basically drawing a line and say, you're either with us or you're with him. And he's like, Psh, Jesus. And here's why I'm bringing this up with you all right now. Here's why I'm bringing this up. I've been in situations where I have felt totally convicted by the Lord after I've conversed with a, with a non-believer. And I've shared the gospel, I thought, and I've debated with them, and 95% of the conversation was just debating random finer points of doctrine that I was confident about and matter, and I believe, and walked away and said, I don't think that guy knows I love Christ. When you talk with a non-believer, you should want them to leave that conversation, not thinking, man, that's such a good guy. Or, man, that, that, that woman is really committed to her faith, to her beliefs. We want people to walk away from interactions with us and say, wow, that person loves their Jesus. Belief in the name of the only Son of God. That's what saves And this is how we can see the present status of condemnation on the world today. Look at the next couple verses here. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Christ has come into the world with the illuminating message of the gospel, but many have rejected him, and they remain in their condemnation. Now, why in the world would someone reject Christ? Why? The free offer of eternal life, forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit indwelling you and empowering you to do all the good God would want. Holy cow, why would anybody reject Christ? And the answer Jesus gives here is because they loved something else more. What do they love? The darkness rather than the light. Why would they reject him? Because they love the darkness rather than the light. This is the second time in just a few verses that the word love shows up. Look up real quick. What's the last time the word love shows up? Verse 16. 
And whose love is being talked about there? God's love for the world. For God so loved the world. And you know, you can even ask people about just a personal definition of the word love. And I bet you many of them will, will add something about a willingness to sacrifice for that thing that you love. And that's exactly right. God was willing to sacrifice, literally sacrifice, his greatest treasure in his son. Literally sacrifice for what he loved. And we're not much different than that. We will sacrifice for what we love as well. In fact, people will sacrifice eternal life in order to have their works of darkness. For all the outcry about hell, in the end, everyone gets what they love. You will get whatever you love. In the end, whatever you love most, you can have for eternity. You love darkness, that's why they call it outer darkness. You will have that for forever. You love Christ, you get him for forever. We all get what we want in the end. Jesus says it this way in a different context in Matthew 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? It's talking about finances. It's more than that, but that's, that's usually what we draw up there. But the idea is that these are linked Your treasure and your heart are inseparable. If you treasure your wicked works, you can swim in that treasure for forever. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People hate this about Jesus. He said this in John 7, 7. He said, the world cannot hate you, my disciples, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus just calls it like it is. He doesn't go, ah, those are not perfect. Ah, that's, that's just kind of not quite up to the standard. Evil. And they hate him for it because he exposes sin for what it is. If you give people a choice, you can either have Christ Or you can have your works and all the consequences for them. Many have and will choose their works. And that will be the basis for their judgment. Revelation 20, great throne room. I brought this up last week because it makes total sense to this. Jesus is judging people based upon the open books. The dead are raised. They come out of the sea. The sea gives up its dead. It's the final moment before final judgment And what are the dead judged by? If they're not in the book of life, by belief, if they're not there, they're judged by their works. That's the basis for their judgment. Jesus continues, last two verses. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Everyone who does wicked things Hates the light. Why do unbelievers not come to Christ? What does Jesus give the an- as the answer to that here? Why do unbelievers not come to Christ? Because their works will be exposed. That's why. He shows sin for what it is. It's like the stubborn old farmer who refuses to go see the doctor when he ails because he doesn't want to admit his weakness. We must, that's why we call it surrender to Jesus. It is, there's a humility involved in it. It is, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I'm condemned, I'm deserving of this, I'm going to die. 
But on the other side, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Believers come to the light. And the examination of works there is a wonderful thing because what is seen is the works of God. No one steps out of the shadow into the light and then says, look at how pure I am. Look at how clean my garments. No wonder you want me on your team. No one does this. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Paul says something similar. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, think think about this. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Have you ever heard that said? I went on a camping trip with my kids and a couple of families from the church here just a few weeks back during sabbatical time, and uh, we had all of our camp chairs around the super smoky, smoky uh, fire pit, and by the time I had gotten home, everything smelled like smoke. It's the kind of smoke that you throw your, your laundry in like two or three different loads, and it's still, if you do a, a deep breath, you're like, man, it's, that's still smoke. Well, the chairs smelled worse than anything because we didn't wash them at all, and so one day I just set them out in the sunlight on the, uh, the driveway, And within a few hours, I went back and deeply did that sniff test, gone. You probably know that about a bunch of practical things with the sun. I think it's a good illustration for this because Jesus even says, all who come to me, I will never turn away. I will never lose. Their sins will be forgiven. This means that if you step into the sunlight, what happens is not that God goes, oh, you're... You're, you're way better than I thought. No. The sunlight does the work. The light here does the work so that we see the disinfecting happen and we, we watch God do that great thing. And it's so important here for us to remember. Because remember the point about the Pharisees? Even those who seem the most righteous on the outside have to acknowledge their condemnation. Salvation works out in such a way that all the credit and glory goes to God and not to you. Even your good works now. As you stand there, and that, that illustration, stand there in the light and watch it just shed off of you and all of the sins that you've had just fall. None of them stick anymore because you're wearing the perfect righteous robes of Christ. And you don't stand there talking up yourself. You stand there in tears saying, thank you, Lord. All of my past sins, my present and future ones too. You see that even then your works have been carried out in God. All glory to Christ. It's impossible to talk about the gospel without mention of condemnation. It's impossible to do it. But the dominant emphasis of our good news is not judgment for sin, but salvation from the consequences of sin. If God has begun his work of salvation in the heart of a lost person, you will see the Holy Spirit at work in their conviction. But if you find yourself having to convince somebody that they're a sinner, their heart is probably hardened. The Holy Spirit's probably not yet at work. They may not yet be ready to receive the gospel. We have a gospel, the way of the master here, is that of a proclamation of salvation, not by our works, but by faith in Christ alone. And that we would be rescued from our present condemnation. Let's be bold with that message. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this. 
Thank you that we have been released from the consequences of that condemnation. We, we don't have the judgment, the wrath rightly due to us over our heads any longer if we have believed because Christ has taken that upon him to the cross. Lord, we are surrounded by people, probably many, 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 many people in our lives that don't yet have the salvation, that still wear everywhere they go, their robes, their, their garment of darkness and filth and sin, just like we had, Lord. We are no better. And yet, Father, they hide in the shadows and the darkness, and the, the Bible tells us that we are no longer children of the nighttime. We are children of the day. That we are to expose things to the light and remain standing in the light. Father, help us with great humility, with great mercy and grace, cry out to those who sit in the shadows next to us and appeal to them that they would step into the light of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Believe on him and be saved. Lord, if there is ever any haughtiness, any pride in us for the, the cleanness of the robes we now wear, I pray that we would be reminded by these things from Jesus, that apart from our belief, None of our works could help us, but only condemn us. Praise your holy name for this precious gift. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.